For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. And sitting in for Neva Hill is former House Speaker Chris Steele, joining me over Zoom video conference. In response to the surge in COVID-19 cases, the governor announces his first statewide restrictions since the spring. Restaurants and bars have to take social distancing measures and close by 11 p.m., Also, masks are required by all 33,000 state employees, along with any visitors in any state buildings. Ryan, does the governor's mandates go far enough? Well, you know, first, let's let's give some credit where credit's due. These are good steps. I mean, this is this. These are steps in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it's it is it, it is it does mark an important departure from where the governor has been for a very long time. Um, you know, I recommend everybody go check out Ben Felder's story uh, at the Frontier, where he did an in-depth coverage into the decision-making processes from the governor's office in response to COVID all the way back to March. And so this does mark a departure, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And we have to have a statewide mask mandate. Every medical professional out there is is just begging for this. Um, you know, I watched a, a story last night on KFOR where they talked about the surge in particular in rural areas. And they said healthcare experts are saying that there is a an overlap in areas where you're seeing, it. there's a surge everywhere, but where the, the surge is really prominent are in, in jurisdictions where there's not a mask mandate. And if you're a small business uh, in Seminole, Oklahoma, you need political cover. You need leadership from the highest level in the state and that's from the governor to be able to say, you've got to wear a mask in this business. You got to have a mask in this place. And without that, we're going to continue to see uh, a large number of Oklahomans not wearing masks. So, you know, the, the governor needs to go much further than what he's done. Uh, Speaker Steele. You know, I, I think I agree uh, with with Ryan's assessment for the most part. I think this, these the, the decisions, the steps that the governor has implemented are absolutely movement in the right direction. Uh, I, I wish that uh, this issue was not politicized. It, 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 it hurts my heart to know that we have a pandemic, a health issue that has become so politicized. I do not know why we are not following the recommendations of our healthcare experts when they are pleading for a statewide mask mandate. It seems to me that that is a very reasonable and relatively easy thing to do. In the governor's defense, I, I, I appreciate the fact that he has incorporated a mandate for state employees, and I get it from a conservative standpoint that he does not want to impose a mandate on private businesses or on individuals. But at the same time, I, I just think it's imperative that we uh, require a statewide mask mandate to 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 say that people have to to cover their face and nose when in public and and practice social distancing just does not seem like a stretch for me. I do want to affirm and commend the governor for the steps that he has taken. I think that these are our movement. This is movement in the right direction and to recognize the significance of the numbers of, of COVID cases and, and the, the spike and the increase and to take action, I think is, is very responsible. He's to be commended. I personally wish that we could go one step further and just make sure that we had an individual mask mandate statewide. But um, certainly the governor is to be commended for his actions. And it goes with the governor and with the State Department of Education. Why not create a mask mandate and then just allow local schools, local local counties or cities to opt out? And that way everyone has to do it unless a government or a school says, hey, no, that's okay. We don't mind. 
Oh, yeah, I, 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 go ahead, go ahead Brian. Chris. No, please, go well, ahead. What I would say, uh, this, this is like the most polite political conversation <laughs> maybe in the country right now. Um, yeah, I would say that that, that even um, doesn't do, I mean, the mask mandate from a governor, what you're really doing there is you're giving political permission uh, to county commissioners, to city councilors, to uh, school board members, to superintendents, uh, small business owners, whomever that is, that feel like they're in an impossible situation right now. Um, if if you give them this opt out, you you still have that political pressure on them. I think that it's just a matter of the governor just needs to take this one and say and own it and be a leader and say we're going to have a statewide mask mandate. And you know if if other folks need to point the finger at him, he's the governor and the buck stops with him, or at least that's the way it should work. Yeah, and I I do think though that if the governor were to issue a statewide mask mandate and even allow. Uh, provisions for local entities to opt out. I think the mandate itself signals that this issue is significant. I, I think it's, it's a reminder. It communicates that, look, this is serious. We all have a part to play in this. Uh, nobody is an island unto themselves. We, we, what our actions affect those of others around us. And, and I think ultimately uh, a statewide mandate signals uh, the right message to Oklahoma that we have to take uh, this um, this pandemic um, seriously, and and I I just wish it would happen. Governor Stitt removed the president of the statewide virtual charter school board, John Harrington, who had led initiation of termination proceedings of Epic. In his place, the governor has installed the former president of an Edmond private Christian school. Harrington says he was released soon after he was planning to call on two board members with ties to Epic to recuse themselves from matters related to the virtual school. Uh, Ryan, why would the governor make this change? That's a that's the the six million dollar question. I, I think that this is incredibly troubling for the uh, the advancement of the investigation and the hearing over the termination of Epic Charter Schools uh, charter from the state uh, from the state of Oklahoma and. You know, that hearing takes place on January 20th, 2021. So we're coming up on that, uh, you know, real fast now. And with, with Harrington's removal, you're removing an individual who has been extraordinarily competent in leading this investigation uh, and ensuring uh, compliance from Epic and trying to deliver the promise of virtual charter school in a responsible and cost-effective way, uh, an effective way from a pedagogical standpoint to the people of Oklahoma and more, most importantly to the students of Oklahoma. So his removal at this last minute, um, I think, paves the way for the two school board to, for the two virtual school board members that still have you know deep conflicts of interest uh, that he was hoping he wasn't asking them to he you know more than anything else he he just wanted them to not be involved in these decision making processes um, and so I think that they'll probably still remain involved and now you're going to have somebody leading this who's brand new to the job uh, so you're not going to have that continuity. Uh, and expertise that you had with uh, with Mr. Harrington. So, I mean, that's uh, it. It is it is troubling for for the prospects of, of this important investigation um, that shouldn't have political actors with with their fingers at at this point. It just needs to be left alone and let these experts do their job. Chris, is there a concern about a, a conflict or the appearance of a conflict of interest here? Well, I certainly think the timing of the removal of Mr. Harrington is extremely suspicious. I mean, it comes out at a moment in time, at a critical moment, as Ryan mentioned, and at a point in time when 
um, you know, there, the, the, the Mr. Harrington had raised issues, uh, concerns about the other board members who apparently are appear, uh, seemingly have conflicts of interest. And then to remove him two days later um, without any clear understanding as to why. I mean, there's, there's no evidence that, that his, his performance as the chair was anything less than um, above board. Uh, competent and um, you know he was doing his job with integrity. Um, I am concerned that the change in leadership at this moment in the investigation could delay um, the outcome of the investigation and, and ultimately um, uh, you know put us behind the eight ball when it comes to really getting to the bottom of uh, what's going on with uh, the appropriations to this um, to this charter to this virtual uh, school. Yeah, and it, it could undermine the, you know, even if the investigation moves forward the way that it's supposed to, it could undermine the public's confidence in, in the outcome. And, you know, we, we need to have some confidence in the outcome of this. You know, and I'll say, I'll say too, that it, it begs the question of when the governor signed on to this audit to Epic, uh, did the governor really think that the audit was going to reveal uh, the allegations of, of, of wrongdoing and malfeasance? that was ultimately revealed in this massive audit report? Or did he think that it was gonna just clear Epic and everything, it was gonna be a way to clear the slate for them and everybody just keep doing business as usual? And I, you know, was the governor caught off guard? And now is he at a point where he feels like he has to disrupt this investigation some way and in a totally legal way. I'm not, I'm not saying that what he's, you know, it's, it's his, totally his, uh, his uh, discretion to appoint who he wants in that position, but does he see this as a way to disrupt the continuity or confidence in, a, in an investigation and a hearing that may ultimately have a very negative uh, outcome for Epic. 22 Republican lawmakers are calling on the governor to order an investigation of the State Department of Education accounting system. This comes from the state auditor questioning taxpayer dollars by the agencies towards Epic. Governor Stitt is considering the request. Uh, Speaker Steele, what are your thoughts on the call for an audit of the Department of Education? Well, based on everything that I've read and what I know about this, the Department of Education has also raised concerns about the reporting processes from Epic uh, um, Charter Virtual Schools in that they were saying all along that when they were asking for the reports, the reports would be turned in late. And then if there were discrepancies, the Department of Education was indicating that they did not have the uh, standing to really hold um, Epic or, or the entity in question accountable. And so, you know, I, I think ultimately there's some good that can come out of the audit of the, the State Department of Education in this regard, not in a sense that they have necessarily done anything wrong, but I think it's going to reveal that they may not have the tools necessary to adequately do their job. They may not have the resources or the personnel uh, they need to adequately do the accounting, uh, the accountability piece that we would expect for them to do. So I'm hopeful. I don't think that the State Department of Education has anything to hide here. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in the leadership of Joey Hoffmeister, uh, but I think that the audit could actually be helpful in revealing some gaps or some, some dis- discrepancies that are necessary for the Department of Education to be able to do its job in a manner in which um, elected officials and the taxpayers would, would hope that they would be able to do their job. All right. You know, I think that there's there's nothing inherently wrong with a uh, a routine audit of any state agency whatsoever. 
And as Chris said, I think that, you know, there, there could be the, the most uh, important findings that could come out of this audit are that, you know, a lot of schools and maybe the Department of Education uh, doesn't have the tools that they need uh, to be able to, to do their job effectively, you know, not a, an, um, an issue of malfeasance or anything like that. That's a world apart from what we've seen with Epic Charter Schools. Uh, Epic Charter Schools is a for-profit corporation run by a couple of folks that have become millionaires on the backs of Oklahoma taxpayers. And they did everything they could to frustrate an investigation and an audit. You know, public schools are built around the idea of transparency and accountability to mission, uh, where Epic Charter Schools is built around, at this point, what we've seen is just frustration of investigations and uh, and profit. You know, I spoke with the Associate Executive Director at OEA, Amanda Ewing, and she said that the Oklahoma Education Association believes that this audit, even though they believe audits you know, have some inherent value, but this particular audit is more of a distraction from the investigation of Epic. Um, and so, and as, as uh, Chris pointed out, they, you know, OEA says they may find some tools that public schools need, but they said also no other public school district has corporate structures sheltering millions of dollars from o- oversight. No other district has leaders with financial motives to obfuscate their reporting. Uh, and whenever a superintendent uh, submits their reports to their financial reports to the State Department of Education, they put their administrator certification on the line. Uh, and so that's that's a very different thing right now. So uh, the audit itself, you know, fine, go for it. We may learn some things that could be important, but the motives behind it, uh, you know, may be more of a distraction, at least according to the Oklahoma Education Association, than to actually try to uncover some some malfeasance or wrongdoing. It was surprising <laughs> that I that the it included eleven lawmakers from the House, eleven from the Senate, but did not include any of the K through twelve chairs of com, or committees for K through twelve education. They did not sign off on this letter, so uh, it was kind of surprising that the two the two chairs of of the education committees would not have signed off on this. Yeah, I think I think a couple of things. I think that's a really good observation, and I think that probably a, a dynamic that plays into that is that the chairs of the the, the common education uh, committees in both the House and the Senate probably have closer proximity and a better understanding of what is happening within the Department of Education and and how they're able to to um, to carry forth their mission. Maybe some of the other members just have questions and, and this audit can help a- answer those questions. Uh, and I think that that's, that's bound to be a big part of it. I know that the Department of Education extended the offer to any lawmakers to come and learn more about how their processes works, even you know outside of the audit itself. But I just wanna go back and underscore the fact that um, in, in many ways, and, and, and I hear exactly what Ryan's saying, and I think that there's some value in that. This very well could be a distraction. And if that's the case, you know, I, that's not the right proper motivation for uh, an audit of this sort. But uh, since it's coming, since it's going to happen, I'm going to choose to believe that it is necessary because I do think that um, virtual schools, uh, uh, distance learning, um, remote learning will become more prevalent in years to come. And I think it's imperative that we have um, adequate accountability structures around uh, that dynamic. So, uh, you know, I'm going to choose to believe that lots of good will come out of this, even if um, the motives may not be pure on the, on the front end. Well, and Chris, and I think that that all plays into the, the important need for oversight and reform that I think Epic has got to realize is coming this legislative session, you know, and even, even if there wasn't this 
audit that's just been disastrous for Epic. Uh, you know, there's still we're still seeing so many more students in Oklahoma, including my two kiddos, that are uh, participating in some sort of virtual school. My kids do it through the Oklahoma City public school system. Um, but virtual school is has become an important component of learning in Oklahoma. I think that everything from, you know, maybe absorbing the statewide uh, charter schools uh, board into the, the Department of Ed itself, the State Department of Ed itself, uh, to more oversight and transparency and accountability mechanisms. Those are going to be really important conversations out at the Capitol this year. And I, I think, you know, Epic or anybody else can do it, whatever they wanted to do to derail that conversation. But you got too many lawmakers, uh, Republicans and, and Democrats that are, are intent on seeing this deal through. The Department of Corrections is ending the practice of giving inmates time off for good behavior or taking programs to help them upon release. This comes after Attorney General Mike Hunter declared the practice illegal. Officials believe this will increase the prison population by nearly 4% in two years. Speaker Steele, why is this considered illegal? Well, you, let me just tell you first and foremost, we're, this, this decision um, is taking us in the wrong direction. Uh, I just want to start with the, the the human aspect of what's going on here. Um, for years, we've had the opportunity for people who find themselves involved in the criminal justice system and incarcerated to be able to, um, uh, you know, take some time off their sentence through good behavior, through engaging in programs and in processes and in classes that would ultimately better themselves and allow themselves to, to actually um, engage in corrections. Uh, imagine that. It's, it's in the name of the, the agency. And now to take away the incentive uh, to, to behave well or the incentive to obtain a GED or the incentive to engage in programs that would help you be successful at the point of reentering uh, the the community or society is just counterintuitive. I am very concerned about this, and and I will also just say that I have the 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 privilege of working with men and women who are directly impacted uh, by this decision, and it has been. I mean, people who had a plan in place, who were counting down the days, who were um, doing anything and everything they could to put themselves in the best possible position to get out and reconnect with their families are now looking at additional years mm -hmm. uh, uh, added on to their, their time of incarceration because of this decision. And, and it is, it is mind boggling. It is discouraging. Uh, I am not certain why the decision was made. I don't know why it became an issue. I think that the department of corrections through their policy had the opportunity to create this credit for good behavior uh, for reentry services. I think it was working extremely well and to take it away is a, giga a gigantic step backwards. Ryan, why do you think it was considered illegal by the attorney general? Well, I think it was considered re uh, illegal by this very bizarre, strict uh, reading of a state statute. Um, and it seems wholly unnecessary on the part of the attorney general to to weigh in on this. It, it's surprising to me that the, that the Department of Corrections, um, you know, more than more than any other agency out there that had been doing this practice for years and who has uh, an interest in seeing uh, our prison population going down and, and sees the, the success of this program would go to the attorney general and say, 
we think that this may be, we think this, this successful program that we may, that we've been using for years uh, is illegal. Uh, please advise. I don't know why they would do that. Uh, that, that seems so strange to me. And, and as, as human, as, as Chris said, the, the human consequences here uh, are immeasurable. Um, the, the deflating feeling, uh, the demoralizing feeling uh, that an individual uh, must be feeling right now, as as we're recording this, you know, sitting in one of our state's uh, uh, prisons, and you know, they had for you know for a very long time doing everything right, thinking that they had a release date in front of them, have just seen that rug pulled right out in front of uh, in front of them and underneath them, and it's that's that's and that's awful. I will say this: um, this is an easy fix. The legislature mm-hmm. should fix this in February. They sh- this should be a top priority for legislative leaders. They should put a bill on the governor's desk. This should be one of the very first bills, if not the first bill on the governor's desk in 2021 for the governor to sign and undo this AG's opinion. It's it's a statutory opinion. It has nothing to do with the Constitution. The legislature and the governor could do it in a week if they wanted to in February, and I hope that they do. And there's also- Michael, can I just add one quick yeah. addendum to this? And, and I just want to underscore the importance of what Ryan just said. Uh, the science would tell us that the best way, the best way to modify behavior is through incentives, is through rewards. In fact, you would need at least four to six rewards for each sanction that you would implement in trying to modify a person's behavior. These credits for good behavior and reentry services are rewards that reinforce the kind of behavior that we would want uh, from our fellow Oklahomans. And so everything that Ryan said is exactly right. We need to get this fixed and back on track and re-implemented as soon as humanly possible. And from a human standpoint, it's very important, but also the fact that Oklahoma has still one of the most high rate, highest rates for incarceration, adding more people to our prison system is not a good thing for the state of Oklahoma. It's just cost more not money. And yeah. yeah, not at all. And, and according to the, the report that I read, uh, this decision is literally going to add two months onto every year that a person is incarcerated. Uh, it costs $20,000 a year, approximately $20,000 a year to incarcerate a person. We have, depending on whose statistics you look at, the, the third or fourth highest incarceration rate in the country. We have the highest incarceration rate for women and on and on it goes. And, and so when we consider ways that we can safely reduce our prison population, make better use of our state's resources and strengthen families, uh, this decision is, is counter uh, to, to all of those goals. Just want to get very quickly to this. Uh, despite Oklahoma's record high numbers of voters in the presidential election, our state had the lowest voter participation rate. A University of Florida professor estimates the state's turnout of eligible voters at 55 percent compared to states like Minnesota and Maine with participation rates just under 80 percent. Ryan, why is Oklahoma's rate so low? You know, I think that there are uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. You, you see some comments by folks, uh, Professor Keith Gaddy and, uh, and and David Blatt, the former director at the Oklahoma Policy Institute, both both good friends of mine, and, and they talk about lack of competition uh, in these races, and then uh, and, and a lot of a lot of campaigns around the state of Oklahoma. And uh, Keith Gaddy says that there's Professor Gaddy says that there's uh, you know a segment of of society that just won't ever participate uh, if if you give them a chance. I think that you know there, there's some there's some truth in all of that. I also think that 
we have to look at the systems that we've got right now. And I think that, you know, David Blatt's comment and, and Professor Gaddy's comments about competition uh, ring loud and clear. If you're flipping the channels on, on the Saturday afternoon and you come to a football game that's a blowout, you don't hang out and watch that game. You move on to the next one. You want to watch something that's close. You want to feel something. You got some skin in the game. And we need systems that actually amplify the voices of voters and then things like nonpartisan primaries where the top two vote recipients re- advance regardless of political parties, I think do that. I think the most effective system change, and I, I've been an evangelist for, of this for years, is ranked choice voting or RCV as the cool kids call it. Uh, the, um, yeah, I, get, I, I get a lot of eye rolls because people think that it's this far-fetched, uh, unworkable approach. Um, but what it does is it says that as a voter, uh, I don't just have one preference. I have, a, I have a range of preferences and I need to be able to weight that. And voters are smart enough to do that. We saw in this last election in 2020 in conservative jurisdictions, conservative states and liberal states, uh, municipal level and in some at statewide levels, we've seen ranked choice voting uh, uh, pass as a ballot measure. You know, I'd really love to see that happen in Oklahoma in 2022. Uh, you know, we are a politically, we are a much more diverse state uh, than I think our political tone uh, 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 reveals. And, and part of that, that's not because we as people um, don't, don't express that. It's because we just don't have systems that allow that voice to be amplified. Chris. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't, I think, uh, I think Ryan makes some great points. I think that, that Professor Gaddy, Dr. Blatt have also made some really good points about um, you know, some of our elections being too lopsided and people not feeling like their voice counts. And we've got to, we've got to work past that. We've got to continue to work to engage. But I would just say uh, from a practical standpoint in Oklahoma, um, this year was a little bit unique in the fact that we had an historic ice storm and power outage outages were still abundant on election day. And I think that that could have affected uh, some people's ability to get to the polls uh, in addition to the pandemic, I know that the pandemic affected every state, but um, I hope that in future years we're going to see increased voter participation and not have to deal with some of the dynamics that were very unique to November 3rd of 2020. But but starting today, we have to be intentional about engaging and finding ways to engage people in the voting process in our state. We can do better. We have to do better. And hopefully we will do better. Chris and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.